Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which this work was developed and is presented. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hello there, and welcome to the Community Library, a podcast, book club and discussion space. I'm your host, Angari Rice. Last week, I delivered an emergency episode featuring my sister. Uh, This was because, unfortunately, I was really unhappy with the first draft of this episode. Harry Potter is my favorite book series, like ever, and because this episode is a discussion of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, I really wanted to make sure that I did it right. So my first attempt at recording and editing this episode did not go as I had planned. I talked for way too long, I kept ignoring my notes and going off on tangents, and I realized when editing it that I didn't even know what I was saying or what I was arguing for. So I scrapped the episode and now I'm starting again with what I hope will be a much clearer and more concise episode. So the main thing that I'm changing this week is my approach to how I create the episode. Usually I will have like a page or two of notes organized by section and by theme and then I'll just press record and see what happens, which is not the most efficient way of creating an episode because I end up spending ages editing it. So this week, I've actually typed out an essay-like document for me to read through, and this way, I'm hoping that my ideas will be presented in a much, much clearer way and that the episode won't take so bloody long to edit. So let me know which approach or style you think works best, if you can even tell a difference. I hope you can't. Um, And as always, you can tweet me at Angari Rice or you can message me on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library to let me know. Okay, let's get on with the episode. So this all started in October last year. Uh, I started rereading the Harry Potter series for the first time in a really long time. As I was reading The Philosopher's Stone, I started taking notes and I really noticed themes and phrases that I didn't notice the first time round. So something that I became really interested in was the absence of fiction in the wizarding world. Naturally, I took to Twitter and I wrote a whole Twitter thread asking why there seems to be no fiction in the world of Harry Potter. And lots of people responded with their own theories on the subject. One of my favorites was from at Wisema, who said, quote, Lavender and Parvati are reading every wizard-based romance out there, end quote. Personally, I like to believe that this is true. But even after exploring the question on Twitter and getting some great responses from people, I was still really curious about this one question. Does fiction exist in the wizarding world of Harry Potter? So before I delve into the murky waters of interpretation of textual evidence, I have to give a disclaimer. Uh, This is to limit my research into evidence and also to prevent people from bringing up evidence from the Lego Harry Potter video game to disprove my point. So here we go. This essay is based on textual evidence from the 1997 British edition of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone by J.K. Rowling. I'm excluding and ignoring all evidence from the following sources. 1. The six remaining books in the series. 2. 
the 2001 film adaptation, and all subsequent films in the Warner Brothers franchise, including Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and Fantastic Beasts, The Crime of Grindelwald. 3. The Hogwarts Library Collection, which includes Quidditch Through the Ages, Tales of Beetle the Bard, and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. 4. All forms of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. This means play script and performance. 5. All video game representations of the Harry Potter books or movies, including Lego Harry Potter and Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery. 6. Pottermore content, including pieces written by J.K. Rowling. 7. Tweets or Tumblr posts from J.K. Rowling. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, let's properly begin! In this episode, I'm going to address four theories that may answer this question. I'm going to start with two theories that assume that fiction does exist, but we as the audience don't see it because of the perspectives through which we experience the Wizarding World. So the first possible explanation for the lack of fiction in the Wizarding World is Harry's uninterest in books. So because he doesn't care much for books or schoolwork, his biased perspective excludes fiction from his representation of the Wizarding World. Now we see lots of evidence for Harry's disinterest in books, and it starts with his upbringing in the Muggle world. And even though Harry is considered like the pole opposite to the Dursleys, and he's always, you know, the odd one out, I would argue that his relationship with books has been inherited from the Dursleys. And maybe, maybe this is something that Harry doesn't realise, but I think this is a bias that he brings with him into the Wizarding World. So the first thing that would limit Harry's perspective of books in the Wizarding World is his attitude towards libraries. And again, this starts in the Muggle world, and we can assume that this is a result of his upbringing with the Dursleys. When Harry receives his first letter from Hogwarts, he's trying to think of who it could be from, and he runs through a few possibilities including the library. And we are told, quote, he didn't belong to the library, so he'd never even got rude notes asking for books back, end quote. So I think that there are two really important things to note here. The first is that he doesn't belong to a library, and therefore there is no way for him to access fiction outside of the Dursleys' house, and it's evident that they have no interest in fiction either, because Harry remarks that in Dudley's second bedroom, the books were, quote, the only things in the room that looked as though they had never been touched, end quote. So we know that the Dursleys have no interest in reading, and therefore Harry is not part of a library and also has no interest in reading. So already his perspective and his view of the world is not one that includes books. The second thing that I would like to note is that Harry uses the word rude. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I think that the addition of the word rude really draws attention to the fact that Harry dislikes libraries, or if he if he doesn't dislike them, they at least make him uncomfortable. And I think Harry's discomfort in relation to libraries is shown when he first um, steps into Ollivander's wand shop. So he steps in and it's like all quiet and dusty and eerie, and the narrator says, quote, Harry felt strangely as though he had entered a very strict library. He swallowed a lot of new questions which had just occurred to him, 
end quote. So even though this is a simile and we're not actually talking about him stepping into a library, I think his use of this analogy or simile shows Harry's relationship towards libraries. For Harry, a library is a place of restriction. It's a, it's a place where he's unwelcome and where he feels like he has to restrain himself in order to exist in the space. I think that this discomfort that is associated with libraries does offer an explanation as to why the audience doesn't see any fiction books in the Wizarding World. And it's because Harry doesn't connect with books and he feels isolated and uncomfortable in spaces where books are held. So this raises the question, why doesn't Harry like books? I think one explanation that I mentioned before is his upbringing with the Dursleys. You know, the Dursleys were uninterested in books, uninterested in libraries, and that's just something that he's learnt as a kid. But I think another explanation is perhaps that he doesn't consider himself a traditionally, like in quotations, academic person. And I think there's evidence for this when Harry first steps into the Wizarding World. So when he first goes into the Wizarding World, Hagrid takes him to Diagon Alley and Harry is amazed at the environment around him. And he spends a lot of time in Flourish and Blots, just marveling over all of the books that they sell. And he even names Hedwig his owl after, and I quote, a name he found in a history of magic, end quote. And also after returning home from Diagon Alley, we are told, quote, his school books were very interesting. He lay on his bed reading late into the night, end quote. So this shows me that at the beginning of Harry's journey in the magical world, he is fascinated by books and he feels connected to them because they connect him to this world in which he belongs. But as soon as Harry arrives at school at Hogwarts and books are coded as academic and associated with homework, he completely loses interest and that just becomes Hermione's thing. So I think that Harry's disinterest in books can be explained by both his upbringing with the Dursleys and also how he associates books with homework and stress. Either way, whatever the reason for this, it does limit Harry's perspective on how the wizarding world is represented. So Maybe there are works of fiction in the Wizarding World, but because they're not mentioned in Harry's version of the Muggle World or the Wizarding World, Harry is just uninterested and, and therefore the story doesn't show them. But this is where things get really interesting, because what if we consider the perspective of a character who does love books? So if we assume that there is, in fact, fiction in the Wizarding World, but Harry's perspective doesn't show it, what about Hermione's perspective? I mean, Hermione is a character built on, you know, amongst other things, her love of books and learning. But when we look at her relationship with books, she appears to only ever interact with non-fiction books and never fiction. So for Hermione, books are a learning tool, but only non-fiction books are a learning tool. And so if there is fiction in the Wizarding World, she wouldn't expose us to it either. So now I'm going to look at how and why Hermione values only fiction books and why her perspective also might be biased when we're considering the representation of books in the Wizarding World. So no matter what the situation is with fiction in the Wizarding World, it's pretty clear that Hogwarts as like this institution of learning only values nonfiction books. Like every single book on the Hogwarts book list is clearly nonfiction. Words like theory, guide, grade one, 
in the titles of the books heavily suggest this. There's also evidence of Hermione's desperate desire to fit in in the wizarding world, and I could make a whole other episode on this, but I just want to mention it here. In one of my favorite quotes, she reveals her fear of being forced to leave, and she says, quote, we could have all been killed, or worse, expelled, end quote. Even though this line is kind of comedic, you know, it's used to get a laugh, at least in the film it is, because Ron afterwards says, oh, she needs to get her priorities right. I think it does reveal something really deep about Hermione. It shows, however dramatic this assumption is, that she would rather be dead than an outcast in the wizarding world. So to me, this shows that Hermione wants to do everything in her power to succeed at Hogwarts and to fit in. And because Hogwarts' main way of learning is through the use of books, she makes reading nonfiction her top priority. And Hermione reveals this the very first time that we meet her in the train compartment. So after meeting Harry, she rattles off all of the books that he's in that she read for background reading. And she says, quote, Modern Magical History and The Rise and Fall of the Dark Arts and Great Wizarding Events of the 20th Century, end quote. So this immediately sets her up as this ambitious, clever character who has done everything in her power to feel included in the world. Another example of this is when the first years have just arrived at Hogwarts and they're all whispering about what the test to sort them into houses might be. And Hermione is, quote, whispering very fast about all the spells she'd learned and wondering which one she'd need, end quote. <laughs> so we, we have all of this evidence showing that Hermione is obsessed with books and that this is directly linked to her desire to succeed and to fit in at Hogwarts and therefore also in the wider wizarding world. But we also know that she loves the library. And unlike for Harry, the library is a place where Hermione feels really comfortable. Now, I know I said I'd exclude evidence from everything that is not Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, but I am frequently hypocritical. So to be on brand, I'm going to use a quote from Chamber of Secrets to prove my point. Ron says, quote, that's what Hermione does. When in doubt, go to the library, end quote. So if there is fiction in the Wizarding World, surely it would be in the Hogwarts Library, right? But because our view of the Hogwarts Library is through Hermione's eyes and she only values nonfiction as a learning tool, then maybe that's why we don't see evidence of fiction, even through the eyes of someone who loves books. However, there is one more thing that I would like to bring up and consider in this argument. So Hermione's love of rules and measure of success is modeled off the rules of the wizarding world, right? She values nonfiction because Hogwarts values nonfiction. Throughout the book, Hermione learns to reject the norm and, and fight against authority. But at the start of the book, she holds the highest respect for figures of authority and she refuses to question it as well. There's a point in Philosopher's Stone where Harry is saying Snape's up to something, like he's definitely trying to kill me or something. And Hermione refuses to believe that he's up to something suspicious. She says he wouldn't do that. And Ron says, quote, honestly, Hermione, you think all teachers are saints or something, end quote. 
I think this perfectly highlights how Hermione views teachers and figures of authority. But as she grows as a character throughout the Philosopher's Stone, she finds flaws in figures of authority and she learns that she can't always trust the system. And the example here is is obviously Quirrell. But she never applies this to her approach to learning through books. When I consider this, I think, well, if works of fiction did exist in the Wizarding World and Hogwarts as a school didn't value them for learning, wouldn't Hermione's growth as a character result in her realizing this bias within the school? I mean, looking at the evidence, I would say yes, but this doesn't happen. And so, I don't know, it leads me to believe that fiction just doesn't exist in the Wizarding World. Controversial, I know. So this is where my next two theories come in. Both of these theories assume that there is no fiction in the Wizarding World and attempt to address why this is. I believe that the first clue as to why fiction doesn't exist in the Wizarding World lies in the way that books, that is like non-fiction books, are treated. So drawing evidence from the text, I've come to the conclusion that in the Wizarding World, success through physical labor is valued above success in academia. And this offers an explanation as to why one whole category of books is absent, because books simply just aren't valued as much. And we see lots of evidence of this idea of of theory versus practice in the magical world. The first one being Professor Quirrell. Quirrell is considered an inadequate teacher because he failed to apply his theoretical knowledge of Defense Against the Dark Arts to practical situations. After Harry first meets Quirrell, Hagrid says, quote, he was fine while he was studying out of books, but then he took a year off to get some first-hand experience, end quote. So he implies that Quirrell couldn't handle himself practically, and therefore he's deemed a failure, basically. And, you know, we find out and we all know that Quirrell's nervousness and and his (laughs) incompetence as a teacher was just an act to disguise the fact that Voldemort was living out of the back of his head. But that aside, I think the way that he is treated as a failure is really important because it shows us that in the Wizarding World, being successful in terms of theory of magic is irrelevant if if you're unsuccessful in applying that theory. We see another example of this when Hermione lies about seeking out the troll on Halloween to get Harry and Ron out of trouble. She says, quote, I went looking for the troll because I thought I could deal with it on my own, you know, because I've read about them, end quote. So the fact that McGonagall believes Hermione's lie, I think it really highlights the role of books in relation to magic as a practice. And it suggests that theory actually won't help you succeed in the wizarding world. That if you study and research a certain thing your whole life, that doesn't mean that you will be good at it when crunch time comes. The capability of achieving success in magic is is something you're just born with, something you either have a knack for or you don't. And there's another example of this idea that natural talent outstrips research, and that's in Quidditch. So Hermione's approach to flying lessons is to, of course, research the hell out of Quidditch. And the book tells us, quote, she bore the more stupid with flying tips she'd gotten out of a library book called Quidditch Through the Ages, end quote. Even though Hermione appears to be the only one who has researched and prepared for the lesson, 
it's Harry who excels at the art of flying a broom and it's Harry who's put on the Gryffindor Quidditch team practically on the spot. So again, I think that this shows us that to achieve success in the magical world, you need a certain something that you're just born with. And I know that this example is in relation to sport and success in sport, even in our world, is largely due to natural talent. But there's another example that I think shows how this idea is applied to all areas of the magical world. So it's when Hermione and Harry are facing the second last challenge that they need to get through in order to get to the Philosopher's Stone. And it's the seven potion bottles. So there are seven bottles on a table, each filled with a mysterious liquid. There's a door of fire in front of them and a door of fire behind them. There's also a riddle explaining that of the seven, one potion will transport the drinker back through the fire and one will transport them forward. Two bottles hold nettle wine and the remaining three hold poison. And there's a list of clues in the riddle that will help you figure out which potion will send you forward and which one will send you back. So when Hermione is faced with this task, she says, quote, This isn't magic, it's logic, a puzzle. A lot of the greatest wizards haven't got an ounce of logic. They'd be stuck in here forever, end quote. In this one sentence, I think Hermione implies that famous and great wizards have achieved that greatness through physical battle rather than using logic or cleverness. To me, I think this further shows that in the wizarding world, no one cares if you're book smart. You only achieve success through winning a physical battle. The final quote that I want to mention here in relation to this argument happens in that same scene in the room with the potions. So Harry is going to go through to the next stage and he's doubting himself and he tells Hermione that he's not as good of a wizard as she is. And Hermione responds, quote, books and cleverness, there are more important things, friendship and bravery, end quote. This quote to me really shows what's considered important in the wizarding world. It's that in the face of danger, physical battle and bravery are valued more than cleverness. And this links back to my argument that books are not valued in wizarding society and therefore there is actually no need for fiction for enjoyment or as a learning tool because natural physical talent and bravery is required to achieve greatness. So finally, I think that this raises the question as to why this is the case. You know, why are natural talent and bravery valued more? I think that the answer lies in the very foundation on which this whole magic system is built, and that is love. In the final battle, it's the power of love that saves Harry in his battle with Quirrell over the Philosopher's Stone. Later in the hospital wing, Harry asks Dumbledore why Quirrell couldn't touch him without being burned. And Dumbledore says, quote, he didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. It is in your very skin. End quote. So the most powerful thing in the magical world, and I guess in our world, is something that actually can't be expressed in a non-fiction book. Love can't be 
written out like a recipe. It isn't something that you can study and perfect. And the ability to love is something that can't be taught or learned. I think that the dichotomy of love versus research shows itself again with this whole like Harry versus Voldemort thing. Because Voldemort believes that by following a series of steps written out for him, you know, one, get the Philosopher's Stone, two, drink the elixir of life, three, kill Harry, he believes he will achieve immortality. But in the end, it's love that defeats him, the most immortal thing of all, if you will. I think this maybe offers us an explanation as to why nonfiction books are considered less important in the magical world, because the whole foundation of magic is built on something you can't write down in that way. One could argue that fiction is an art form that captures love in a way that nonfiction can't, but I believe that magic is the art form that captures love, and therefore fiction isn't needed. So this brings me to my final argument or theory that could possibly explain why fiction isn't necessary in the wizarding world. So this whole time I've been considering perspectives and arguments that operate inside the canon as if the wizarding world is like a real place. (laughs) Um, But this theory considers the wizarding world as a literary device. I would argue that fiction is considered, amongst other things, a means of escape from the world that we live in. It's a portal through to a world in which we can forget about all of our own problems and focus on someone else's problems for a little bit. So if we consider reading fiction as escapism, then I would suggest that fiction isn't necessary in the wizarding world because the wizarding world itself is the escape. So Harry is an outsider in the Dursley family, right? He's constantly referred to as boy by his uncle, often ignored by his aunt and tormented by his cousin. And he's miserable. He has no friends. So when he finds a world that not only accepts him, but considers him famous and special, he is relieved to finally escape Privet Drive and the Muggle world and everything that makes him miserable. So if we consider the Wizarding World as a literary device rather than a real place, as I've been doing this whole time, then it becomes clear to me that the Wizarding World fills that role of a way to escape ordinary life. So it doesn't need fiction within it because it is the fiction. And you know, despite all of the terrible times that Harry has while in the Wizarding World, he never, not for even one sentence, wishes he wasn't a wizard. He wishes he was just an ordinary wizard in the world. He wishes he didn't have all of these issues of being the chosen one, but he doesn't wish that he never discovered the world in the first place. At the very end of the book, when Ron tells Harry he'll send him an owl over the summer, Harry responds with, quote, I'll need something to look forward to, end quote. So even after the year he's had, after battling a troll, after almost being killed at a Quidditch match, and after coming face to face with Voldemort himself, Harry still dreads leaving Hogwarts and leaving the Wizarding World. With all of this evidence, I believe that as a portal fantasy world constructed for this one character, the Wizarding World doesn't need fiction or somewhere to escape to because it is the fiction and it's the place to which Harry escapes. So, in conclusion, (laughs) I've given you four theories that possibly explain the lack of fiction in the Wizarding World. 
the first to assume that fiction does exist and therefore consider the narrative biases of characters that would lead us to believe that it doesn't. The third theory considers the role and the purpose of nonfiction books and why they might be considered unimportant in the Wizarding World. The final theory looks at the Wizarding World as an allegory of fiction. And in the end, I think the last theory is possibly the most accurate or the most believable because fiction is the gift that JK Rowling gives us. She gives us the opportunity to escape from the muggle world alongside Harry. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as I have. Even though it took a second crack to get this episode the way I wanted it, I'm actually really happy uh, with all the work that I've put in and and the final results. So let me know if you'd be interested in listening to more of these more structured, essay-like, nitpicky discussion episodes. Uh, I could easily go through the whole Harry Potter series and do one for each book, so let me know. I've decided to end this episode by answering some of your questions on the book. You guys really came through with some interesting questions, so I'm excited to answer them. And uh, let's get into the questions from Twitter first. At Farian Nurafnan asks, would you be willing to play Wizard's Chess if there was one in real life? And do you think you'd be good at it? So theoretically, I know how to play chess, but I know nothing about the strategy. So I know which direction all the pieces move in and like how you're allowed to use them but I can't really like play a proper game. I mean, I would definitely love to play Wizards Chess just to see the little pieces like smash into each other, but I would not be good at it at all, for sure. <laughs> at Supershar10 asks, best aspect of the book that you think the movie did right? Well designed, characters portrayal, etc. I love how the movie approached the design of the world. So I'm talking set design, props, costumes, everything. The production design was just incredible. And something I loved was the use of color because they really capitalized on these opposing red and green colors that the book places so much emphasis on. And so I really loved that. One of my favorite elements of the set design from the film is the tapestries in the Gryffindor common room. They're called the Lady and the Unicorn Tapestries. I got to see these tapestries at the Museum of the Middle Ages in Paris. I went to that museum with my mum and saw the tapestries and it was incredible. No one really knows like who made them or why, which is just fascinating. Uh, but five of the six tapestries depict the five senses. So touch, taste, smell, sight, and hearing. And then the sixth tapestry bears the phrase amon seul désir in French. And this can be like translated or interpreted to mean many things, but generally people think that it means to my only desire. So the meaning of the sixth tapestry is a mystery. And I just love how it provides the whole backdrop to the Gryffindor commentary because it does like set the tone visually. But I also think that the story behind the tapestries fits the film very well because the tapestries themselves are quite magical. At MCU underscore Betty Brandt asks, describe your first impressions of Harry, Ron, Hermione, Draco, Ginny, Snape, and Dumbledore in one word each. Okay, for the record, this is first impressions in the first book. Harry, pitiable. Ron, funny. Hermione, favorite. <laughs> Draco, annoying. Ginny, cute. Snape, cruel. And Dumbledore, whimsical. At Retta underscore Potterfan asks, which character did you relate to instantly the first time you read that first book? Definitely Hermione. At Booksmartsy asks, what house are you? I'm a Ravenclaw. 
at Burberry Storm asks, are there any characters you disliked in that first book who you ended up liking? I must admit, I was never a huge fan of Neville. I, I, I didn't like actively dislike him in the first book, but I didn't love him either. He was just kind of a very meh character for me. But as I continued on with the series though, like I, I began to love him. And I think he's one of the most interesting and multifaceted characters in the series for sure. At Crystal Forest W asks, are you okay with the fact that no one ever really told students that they can have some influence on the Sorting Hat's final choice? Yes, I am okay with that. I think kids would just be saying that they wanted to be in Hufflepuff because it had a cool name or Slytherin because they look good in green. Like, I think it's good that the Sorting Hat considers the opinion of those who feel strongly about a particular house, but I like that the kids don't know that they can heavily influence the hat's decision. At NC Manto asks, what's your memory of the first time seeing that movie? Uh, so I remember we, we, we had this um, portable DVD player. It's like a small chunky laptop that only plays DVDs and does nothing else. And I think we still have it and it still works. And um, I remember watching Philosopher's Stone on that portable player while my parents were at work. And I vividly remember watching the Quidditch match. That really sticks out in my mind. So next, I'm going to move on to the questions from Instagram. At Kyle underscore 135 asks, what is your absolute favorite part in the book? For me, it's when Hermione says they could have been killed or worse, expelled. <laughs> this is a long username. At Dan W-O-J-C-I-W-C-H Johnston asks, what do you think Dumbledore saw in the mirror of Erised? I think he saw his family back together again, specifically his sister, alive and well. Kind of similar to Harry, I guess. At Christopher0294 asks, what would you do on your first night with the invisibility cloak in Hogwarts? I love this question and I, I thought a lot about it. So I would sneak into the kitchens, although we all know it's not that hard. I get myself like one of those... Um, Oh, they probably have a really fancy special name, but those things where it's like three uh, plates stacked on top of each other and it's like a high tea sort of thing. It's the thing you have at high tea. Anyway, I'd get one of those with little sandwiches and scones with cream and jam and macaroons. And then I'd go to the top of the astronomy tower carrying my little tea tray and eat tea while looking at the stars. <laughs> at Christopher0294 again asks, what would you see in the mirror of Erised? I have no idea. At Samara Adelgado asks, what was one moment that you feel impacted you the most? So when I was younger, the moment when Harry first steps into Diagon Alley with Hagrid and he's describing all of the shops, like it's our first step into the magical world and it just, it felt so magical. I loved it. Oh, and of course Voldemort's face in the back of Quirrell's head, that, that freaked me out a lot when I was a kid. But rereading it recently, a small moment that really stood out to me was when Hermione is awarded 50 house points at the very end and it says quote Hermione buried her face in her arms Harry strongly suspected she had burst into tears end quote I think it just says so much about how emotional it is for her to be praised and accepted for her achievements that moment impacted me a lot for sure in my reread at kits.bookshelf asks, how much foreshadowing do you detect right back in the Philosopher's Stone? Do you enjoy it more or less knowing the future? I find that a lot of the foreshadowing is when J.K. Rowling mentions characters that we don't know yet, but who will know in future books. So for example, 
Daedalus Deagle and Sirius Black are both mentioned in the first book. But I think the biggest whole section of foreshadowing is when Dumbledore refuses to answer Harry's question that asks why Voldemort would want to kill him in the first place. And he says, you know, I can't answer that, but you will know in due time. And of course, if you're rereading it, you know, you know why. But the audience doesn't find out until the fifth book. I still enjoy reading the books, even though I know how it's going to end. And I do love the excitement of, you know, not knowing what's going to happen next. But I think it's still great to read it and pick out all the little clues that were there the whole time. At th.lloyd asks, how many times have you read this book slash the whole Harry Potter series? If we're looking at physical reads, I've probably read Philosopher's Stone about six or seven times. And I think I've read the whole series through about three times, like the physical book. But if we're also including audiobooks, then I've definitely read Philosopher's Stone more than ten times. And then I've read the whole series about five or six times. At Emily underscore reads asks, do you think Harry was truly a Gryffindor or could he have been a Slytherin? I believe that Harry could have been a Slytherin for sure. But then I'm I'm a firm believer in the theory that the main trio represent the three houses other than Gryffindor, like Harry is a Slytherin, Hermione's Ravenclaw, and Ron is Hufflepuff. And I think that Harry's possibly more of a Slytherin than he wants to be, but he also has a very biased view of what a Slytherin is, so he doesn't really acknowledge it. At Martin underscore Lopez Jr. asks, what's the most important moment in the book for our trio? For me, it's when they defeat the troll. At Renato VL Barros asks, do you remember what was your opinion about Snape back when you read the first book? I thought he was cruel and awful, and I guess I still kind of think that, but my opinion's on Snape for another episode. <laughs> At Aoba underscore Harrigan XX asks, what would you have wanted from the book to be kept in the movie? Definitely, it's uh, the room with seven potions where Harry and Hermione are trying to get to the Philosopher's Stone. So now it's time to draw this episode to a close. I'm excited to announce that the next discussion pick is A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf and the episode will be up in two weeks time and I encourage you all to read along. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe on iTunes so that you never miss an episode. You can also rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. You can follow the community library on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library, and you can use the hashtag the community library on Instagram or Twitter. The podcast artwork is designed by Ashley Running. You can look up more of her work at ashleyrunning.com or you can go to helio-press.com. That's dash the symbol. Once again, thank you for listening and I will talk to you next week. Bye.